Hey everyone, and welcome to the Women Invest in Real Estate podcast. I'm Grace. And I'm Amelia. We're your hosts, both full-time real estate investors on a mission to empower women through real estate investing so they can live out their wildest dreams. Whether you're just dipping your toes into the real estate waters or you're a seasoned pro looking to scale, you're in the right place. We'll be your real estate besties as we talk about our experiences, insights, the nitty-gritty details of our day-to-day lives, and of course, have some belly laughs. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Let's get started. Ever dreamt of diving into private capital with just $5,000? Well, dream no more. We're spilling the beans on raising private capital where you can lend or raise as little as $5,000 with Fractional. Join us on February 6th at 7 p.m. Central for a free virtual meetup. You can sign up using the link in our show notes. At the meetup, we're diving deep into the secrets of raising private capital from your inner circle. We're not just talking theory, we're breaking down an actual deal and giving you all the details about Fractional, your go-to app to collaborate and co-own your next investment. Real talk, real deals, all for free on February 6th at 7 p.m. Central. So secure your spot at the Raising Private Capital meetup now using the link in our show notes. We can't wait to see you there. Hey, yo, everybody. Welcome back to the Wire Podcast. Today, you get me and Grace again, and we're going to be talking about five rental property no-nos that you should not do, even though I think we've done all of them. Done all of them. Guilty. Completely guilty. (laughs) These are going to be, the first two are going to be property specific. The last three are going to be tenant specific. And Millie and I have made all of these mistakes, which is why it was so easy for us to write this list. But yeah, we'll get into it. Number one, busy street or bad to no parking situation. Grace, I know you were just venting to me, not venting, but just chatting with me the other day (laughs) that you actually have a very recent example of this. So do you, do you want to tell everybody about it? Well, that was kind because I actually have a complete systemic issue with this <laughs> as was is what I was telling you. It's a but recurring I, problem. It is. I keep buying properties on busy streets or bad parking. And granted, I get them for a great price. But the reason why this is an issue is because A, it's in- inconvenient for the tenant. So it reduces your rentability. But even more importantly, is it reduces your resale value because somebody who's going to live there for 20 years, they want a good location with easy place to park. But yeah, the situation I was telling Amelia the other day is I bought a house. This is insane. That is on a busy street at the front. It's, it's got it's houses. a double whammy. It's a double no, it's whammy. A triple whammy. It's a triple whammy. It's on a busy street. So you can't park in front. It is in between two houses. So there's no side street parking. Two houses down where there is a side street. It's also a busy street that doesn't have side parking. The alley, it only has like walking alley access because the neighbor across the alley, their garage is actually on the wrong side of the alley. So it goes our house, their garage, alley. So you literally have to park two blocks away from this rental property. I'm just, I'm giggling here because, well, how did, how did this happen? And what did you do to fix it? I mean, yeah, you did a couple things to fix it. So this was kind of a miscommunication, not even a miscommunication, a non-communication between me and my project manager, because I did not see this property when I put it under contract and to fix it. We added on our walkthrough sheet that we do every single property. He fills out like the same thing. Every property is just making sure that like understanding the layout, like who the neighbors are, what the neighborhood is like and what the parking situation is, is super crystal clear to me so that when I run the numbers, I can account for that in ARV and I can account for that 
on just the overall quality of the purchase. Yeah. And we can't talk too much shit about Ethan because we know he listens to this podcast. So no, he's amazing. (laughs) And it's my issue. I looked at it on Google Maps. Like at the end of the day, it is totally my issue. I take accountability for that. Yeah, but the good news is you bought it for like $55,000. So I mean, yeah, and it's also a great story. And it's a good learning lesson. We're just out here to be examples for everybody else in the world. And and to be clear, I did this many times before I had a property manager when I was fully aware of the bad parking situation and I still proceeded to buy the property. I do have the ball rolling to pour a driveway, but now the issue is it's January. It's going to be done soon. So we need to decide if we're going to rent or sell it. If we want to sell it, we can't pour a driveway until the ground ground. thaws in Iowa. So then what, we sit it empty for two months and pay for the vacancy and then try to sell it? Or do we try to rent it now and say, hey, tenants, you actually just can't park here. Or you (laughs) could try to sell it with a contract that says you'll pour a driveway in the spring when it thaws. That's a good idea. And I'll have to talk to my realtor. But anyways, don't buy places with bad parking. Nobody wants to have a funky parking situation. Obviously, if it's priced right, there's a price for everything. But just keep that in mind. Yeah. Speaking of funky, that moves us into number two, which we literally have written down funky layouts. Funky town, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Have you bought any funky layouts? You know, I was trying to rack my brain for that. And I wouldn't say that I have bought any that have super funky layouts within the units, but I've definitely bought a few multifamily conversions. So they were originally single families and they were converted to multifamilies. And those can get a little bit wonky just with like heating and cooling systems, but none None off the top of my head that I'm thinking about right now for rentals. What about you? Well, this property with the no parking, also their only bathroom is a Jack and Jill, which is kind of interesting, but apparently pretty common in the area for houses that are that old. Yeah. So not a huge deal for renting, but to sell it, like you would hopefully have access and not have to walk through somebody's bedroom to go to the bathroom as a guest. Yeah, this is actually a quadruple (laughs) rent. That actually brings up another good point because this is super common in houses in Iowa is like the walk through bedroom to another bedroom in older houses. Like that's super common and something to watch out for, especially if like you want to flip it or even rental, like it just decreases the value of the property and you will have to probably rearrange the layout. So it'll be more work. And renters are much more forgiving than somebody who's buying it. Somebody who's shelling out hundreds of thousands of dollars to deal with this for the long term, they're going to pay a lot less. Whereas renters, like they might only be there for a year or two. So like they'll probably be more forgiving, but I always like to buy houses that are going to resell well so you want to keep that in mind so as a rule of thumb I really I always tell people I don't do funky layouts or at least I try not to I try not to do conversions and that hopefully will help me keep good resale value throughout my portfolio little side note here about resale value so I bought a portfolio from an investor a few years back. We bought four single family homes from him and a few, I think three already had long-term tenants in them. So we're like, great, we'll just keep those tenants. We'll keep going. Well, that was two, almost three years ago at this point. And and the three that had tenants still have those same tenants. Well, one just came due 
and they're moving out. So like, they were like, we're not renewing. We're moving to a completely different city. We're like, great. This is a piece of shit. The only reason we bought it was because it was in this portfolio. We're not doing any work to it. Like we're going to just sell it. So we listed it for super low. We listed it for 15,000 more than we bought it for though. And we ended up getting what we wanted out of it. But when they were doing the walkthrough, granted, we'd only been in the house probably twice. I'd been in the house twice uh, in three years because they were the type of tenants that just never needed anything. But my realtor, I hired a realtor to sell this. She said when they were looking at it, it was a flipper. They went down to the basement, which we didn't even know there was a basement. The guy we bought it from said that they just had a crawl space. And the reason why I'm assuming is because when they went down to the basement, she said that the foundation walls, you could literally push. They were both and they would move. And she said that he pulled, he could like pull bricks out of the foundation walls. And (laughs) she didn't tell me all this until after they had it signed it like under contract because they bought it to flip it. But she's like, I just didn't want to stress you out about it. But like, did you know that it basically like doesn't have a foundation? And we're like, oh my God. No, but we're so glad to be out of it even more now at this point. And we made like, we made a small profit off of it. And I don't know, I just feel like throughout your investing career, you might make purchases that like aren't great, but you can still somehow finagle like a small profit on it. So it didn't have a funky layout, but it literally didn't have a foundation. So <laughs> there's that. Don't Those buy are important. Don't don't buy a house that doesn't even have a foundation. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. I'm glad she didn't tell you until after the fact. I know, because I would have freaked out. We're done with it. They're flipping it good for them. Yeah. Hopefully it was a good flip for that investor. And now, you know, somebody can call it home and and loves it. It was a two week close. Never closed so fast in my damn life. Loved it. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Okay. Now moving on to like tenant specific no-nos for rental properties. Number three is a good one and I'm pretty blunt. So I just put, don't let tenants set the rules. And grew when we were coming up with the outline, Grace is like, why don't we say you determine the ground rules or something like that? I'm like, okay, I'm going to put don't let tenants set the rules. <laughs> no, <laughs> but it's but true. This is important. And I think what that means is knowing that you need to know how you do business and expect tenants to adhere to that. On the flip side, you know, you have things that you need to adhere to that we're going to talk about next, but I don't like bending over backwards for people because they tend to take advantage of it. And again, I'm speaking in broad terms and don't take this the wrong way, but you want to like, for example, paying rent for me, I accept rent two ways. You can't pay me cash. And I tell people you can't get a receipt. So I could take that cash and run. So you can't pay me in cash. And I don't want to track down tenants to go get cash from them. And maintenance requests have to go in the portal because you can't call me. I'll forget. It won't get tracked. So I try to have reasons that benefit the tenant for why I do things, but I want tenants to do things the way I need them to be done so that I can run a smooth business. Absolutely. Yeah. With the maintenance thing, if you specifically say, hey, I don't accept calls or texts, I need everything communicated through the portal, but yet you're still responding to calls and texts, that's training your tenants that they can do, you know, they can contact you however they want and that's fine. So it's yeah. really important to set ground rules and and then stick to them. And I'll give an example of somebody who had was not doing anything wrong, but just not following kind of the communication guidelines we give. We try to do everything in tenant cloud. And I got an email from somebody a few days ago 
I'm like, why on earth are they emailing me? They've never even talked to me. They've only ever talked to my property manager. And the reason they'd have my emails because my property manager works for me. It's not like an external company. And so I emailed her back nicely. And I just said, in the future, please put communication in tenant cloud. I am not the person in charge of this communication. So I can't always get back to you as quickly. So please put it in tenant cloud so that so-and-so can see it. So I'm just reinforcing this is the way we do things so that you can get the fastest response. Was that an emergency request? No, it was during a snowstorm a couple days ago. She was asking when it was going to get shoveled. I made a mental note of that the other day, like being a proactive property manager. And I've been in our upcoming CEO bootcamp, which I think will have started by the time this episode comes out. But like sending out notices to Mm -hmm. your tenants before snowstorms that say, hey, we know a snowstorm is coming. We can't guarantee that the property is going to be cleared by this time. It might take us 24 hours just because everybody's going to be busy. Yeah. So important. I know. I was just thinking about that yesterday because I was on a call where somebody was saying how they actually, when there's a snowstorm, they'll make tenants report if they're going to be home or not. And if they're not home, they say, hey, you're on the hook to make sure your faucet's at a drip, to make sure your furnace is set to X, Y, and Z. And so if something happens and you didn't do what you were supposed to do, you're in charge for the damage. You're on the hook for the damage. And obviously there's a lot more to that. Like that'd have to be in the lease and stuff. But I was like, oh my God, that's such a good proactive thing to do is like getting in contact with all of your properties when there's severe weather coming to make sure you can prevent any accidents or emergencies happening. Yeah. That's honestly why it's also so important to use a property management software that's powerful enough, like Tenant Cloud that we use. You can create templates of messages. So I can just have my snow removal message template saved. And every time that it snows, I can just send that out. I don't have to retype it every single time. It's just saved. I post it to the property board. Boom, done. Yeah. That's so much easier than texting your five different tenants, blah, blah, blah. Yes, exactly. Another thing is when you're set up in a property management system, it's like late fees get automatically applied. So now you don't have to make that decision every month of whether you're going to text your tenant and say, by the way, you owe me late fees. It's automatically there. It it makes it less personal because it's automatically applied. And then it saves you time and it just trains them to pay rent on time because you don't want them to pay late fees. You want them to pay on time. Time so that you can, you know, pay your own bills. So in general, just making sure that you have your own processes and you train your tenants to stick to them so that everybody can be happy. Yeah. And train yourself. We are all about train radi- yourself. Honestly, r- yes. Radical accountability around here. Moving into our radical accountability section, these next two are (laughs) specifically things that you should be doing as a rental property owner all the time. So this one, number four, don't neglect communication and maintenance and repairs. We want you to be a good landlord. We want you to take care of your property. We don't want it to fall to pieces. Typically, when you're a good landlord, you attract and you have a good property, you attract good tenants who can have a happy place to live, pay rent on time, you pay your bills, put money in your pocket, and everybody's happy. Do not be a slumlord. For ethical reasons, and also like we were talking about with number one, is your resale value. When you're proactive with your management and communication and maintenance, you prevent bigger issues 
which give you a great resale. Like you always hear of those investors who are willing to sell their whole portfolio for 60 cents on the dollar because every single property needs $20,000 in repairs because they haven't spent a dime. You don't want to do that. Protect your asset, invest more into your asset. Absolutely. And you want to be an open door in a certain way for your tenants so they don't feel like they can't come to you with maintenance issues. And the reason for this is, and I see this a lot and I've I hear this a lot from landlords. Let's say there's a leak or a mold issue and they don't feel comfortable reaching out to their landlord or they think maintenance issues are going to raise their rent. So they'll just let the problem go. Then that turns into a whole nother level of damage and repairs because it didn't get stopped right when it started. So being responsive to maintenance requests and letting your tenants know, hey, I'd rather you come to me when something is wrong than just ignore it and think that I'm going to get mad or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's huge and will Mm -hmm. save you money in the long run. I have a question for you, Amelia. What do you do on the flip side when somebody's making a ton of maintenance requests that are beginning to be not necessary and more just like preference based? So this is where I invoke the happiness clause and Basically, what that is, is I will say, hey, I want you to be happy at this property. It seems there's some things that you don't really like about the property or you're not happy there. I'm more than willing to let you out of your lease, no penalty, if you want. Mm -hmm. And 9.9 out of 10 times, that stops the issue. I have a tenant. I've used that multiple times before, but I have a tenant where she made so many maintenance requests the first two, three months to where I had to tell my manager, hey, you need to go use the happiness clause, you know, ask her if she doesn't like the property. And it was, it's a really nice property, which is crazy. Was that a midterm or a long-term? Long-term. But basically got to the point where it's like, I can't afford this tenant. (laughs) So I gotta like, shit, I'll freaking sell the property if you're saying that all these maintenance issues are wrong. So there's a fine line, obviously be a good landlord, do what's needed. But also you need to know, and I need to create a policy for this myself. It's like, what is the line? I know. Is there something in your lease? Because I remember like our friend Maddie, she had a tenant who said the faucet doesn't match everything else and made a maintenance request to change it and a bunch of other stuff. And Maddie had to be like, hey, that's cosmetic. You walked this property. You saw it. You signed the lease saying you're renting it as is. You can't make cosmetic maintenance requests. That's extreme. So I need to fine tune my policy to make sure I know how to handle that. Absolutely. So what ended up happening after she invoked the happiness clause? Did the maintenance request stop or? There was a few that we just said like, yeah, we used that verbiage. And then I think we said, you know, we'll get to this in a few yeah. months because they were exterior things and it's winter now. And I think it's slowed down, but I'll have to touch base with my property manager. I love, Anywho. The, I love the juicy landlord drama. I know. You gotta, you gotta get into that every now and then. Mm-hmm. Usually I just end up saying like, if you're not happy, you gotta go. Sometimes it has to be taken a step further than that. And you really have to be like, you got to go. But yeah, it's it's case by case. Okay. Number five, fifth rental property no-no is letting your screening slide. So what I mean by this is when you have a rental property, you should have rental requirements for your tenant and do not lighten those or waive those or give up on those. And I have, and I got completely effed over by it. And it ended up costing me five times more than if I had just let it be vacant for a month or two. So 
whatever it is, credit score, rental history, income, eviction background, whatever you decide, stick to it. And it's usually better to have a little bit more vacancy than to drop your quality of tenant. Do you have any stories, Amelia? Yeah, I have a recent one and I actually want to get your opinion on it. I broke my rules. I broke these rules. I'm like, should I even share this? Because I don't want- Oh, the the example I alluded to is bad, but I want to hear it. No. Okay. So here's the situation. I just placed a tenant that didn't meet my screening criteria. Tell me what you would have done. Tell me, tell me what I'll, I'll walk you through. So this is a one bed, one bath house. It rents for $9.50 a month, not including utilities. I had someone apply who has a well-paying job, plus they bartend on the side. So they make good money. They make quite a bit more than they even put on their application. All of their landlord reference checks came back good. They always paid rent on time. They took care of the property, et cetera. Their credit score was 550. What's your minimum? Like 610, 620. They have student loans. And like they've had maybe one or two loans in default, but the credit score is such a big indicator. That's really what threw me off. But here's the thing. They have a DUI that happened a couple years ago, which DUI is like they're bad, but it's not like it's a a violent offense. You know what I mean? And so what I think happened was basically he got the DUI, had all of these like fees and things that he had to pay and maybe fell a little bit behind. So basically what we did is we accepted him on... On a six-month lease to start out with, we got two months worth of security deposit plus first month's rent, so three months worth of money right off the bat, plus we made both of his parents co-sign. And oh, he's, okay. he's like 30. I mean, he's not young. He's more of an adult. Oh, his parents. Like in their 50s. I know, right? Like having to ask your parents to co-sign at that and actually looked his parents up and they own rental properties. Oh, okay. I honestly, I don't think that's bad at all. Obviously, you don't want to go against your own policies, but you did. But you also did two things, more than two things. You did three things to add some security. You got the co-signers, the deposit, and the six-month lease. And we made him provide all of his pay stubs. Like we did, you know, that whole thing. Like we still went through our whole screening and everything. And we mm-hmm. questioned him about the credit score. I mean, we said, you know, look, this isn't yeah. what we want it to be. So I did break my criteria a little bit, but I took a few steps. So check with me in six months. You did one step <laughs> back, three steps forward. Yeah. <laughs> check with me in, in six months. Yeah. That'll be the indicator. And I love the six month lease thing. I've done that with a few people at worked out. I accepted a sob story once and she was actually a great tenant, but Mm -hmm. the most recent time that I let my screening requirements slip was about a year ago. And she just trashed my property, didn't pay was terrible. And I had to, she's the only person I've ever had to evict my first eviction, hopefully my last. And I knew it. It's just crazy. Like I knew when I accepted her, it wasn't going to go well. I did do the six month lease. I didn't do anything else. I didn't do co-signers, but what happened was I had a lot of vacancy and then I put it at a high rent and she was willing to pay the high rent, which is also a red flag. Like if you have your rent too high, your quality of tenant drops because financially stable people know that it's a it's too much 
but people who are desperate or not financially literate or have 10 people living there will pay it because they don't care that it's not a good idea. So that's another lesson I've learned, but I'm still paying like just two weeks ago, I had to pay her outstanding water bill because it was going to become a lien against my property for $275. I was like, that is insane that the city gets to just put a lien on my property for a bill that was never mine. Oh, I was hot for about a day. <laughs> I didn't hear about that one. I mean, I heard about that tenant, but not the water bill. That was like last week. I bucked up and I paid it because I said, what am I going to do? It's $275. Uh, right. right. Exactly. But, but yeah, but like, happy. quite frankly, if you haven't been investing for very long and you don't have maybe some skill sets that Grace and I have now, not putting us on a pedestal or anything, but We've just been through the ringers all. We, we also have a large enough portfolios that we can withstand some a hit. We can withstand a hit. If you have three properties and you have to go through an eviction, that's a big deal. So stick to your requirements. Even it means that your property is going to be vacant for one or two more months. Like it, it's worth not placing a bad tenant. Yeah. And last thing I will say when it comes to management, I think you know, we've talked a lot about how do you be proactive instead of reactive. I think one thing I'm going to start implementing, especially as my portfolio grows, is meeting my tenant for a walkthrough, either as they sign or as they move in to go through everything in the lease and go through our processes and reiterate everything that they can't do, everything that they can expect from us, just to nip anything in the butt that could happen and just really make sure everybody's on the same page, you know, when it comes to moving in people who aren't on the lease, late payments, how quickly we'll get to maintenance requests, just everything. And I think that having that conversation will really, really make it a lot more smooth sailing with the tenant landlord relationship moving forward. Yeah. And you know, what's beautiful about that is that now that you've hired that aspect of your business out, you don't have to do it. And it's allowed you to serve your tenants in a better way. Ding, ding, ding. Bingo, bitch. Bingo. We'll (laughs) end on that. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to us again this week. And if you have any episode suggestions, put them in the suggestion box, right? Write into us, write in on Spotify or send us an email. Handwritten letters only. (laughs) Snail mail, snail mail, pen pen pal. Okay. We'll catch you. Telegrams only. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you loved today's episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to check us out and join our community at womeninvestinrealestate.com and follow us on Instagram at wirewithtwoeyes.community.